This is the Scripture Study Project, our podcast dedicated to helping you discover the scriptures in a fresh way, invest your mind and heart into your personal study, and connect to God in your everyday life. We are your hosts, Zach and Krista Horton. We're back again this week, per usual. Um, We are studying this week for the week of... July 27th through August 2nd. I can't believe we're making it this far. Yeah. Do I say that too much? Probably. Maybe. Um, <laughs> it feels like a lot, though. Here we go. Um, this is Alma 39 through 42. So we're finishing up these letters from Alma to his sons. And we've got some just some rich chapters that we get to study today. So we're looking forward to that. Um, Zach, do you have any updates for us today? Update on our lives. I don't know if people care about that, but we're uh, we're still homeless, but we won't be homeless much longer. Our youngest daughter last week. Um, no, it was just this week. It was a couple of days ago. Said if you're gonna say the thing, I think yeah, you're gonna say. She said to well, she told you. Right? Well, it was just really cute. She she we're staying with our parents, and she just like looked up at me and goes, oh, "Mom, this is a three year old, Mom." We we forgot to move into our new house. <laughs> I think our kids are like like they're just floating in this endless vacation of grandparents and fun and <laughs> summer and all of together. that thing. So, but we're kind of feeling the same thing. Like, oh, we forgot. No, <laughs> well, it's just it's been a funny summer, but it's been really special too. I think being able to be with our families. So, um, update on Zach. I'm looking at you, and you have some new glasses. New glasses. You, no one can see you, so they don't even know what you look like. They're clear frame. And then I got a pair of circle ones, so I look all So there of... you go. There is our exciting updates for <laughs> for the week. We hope that you guys are having a good summer. Um, it's been really hot where we are, and that's about all. That's it. That's about it. But here we go on to the important stuff. Um, getting started on our study. I already said it. Alma 39 through 42. So here we go. Take it away, Zach. You're up first. <laughs> well, um, this is, boy, there's just, there's so much in here. These are some of the most doctrinally rich chapters in the Book of Mormon, um, but they come in one of the most painful contexts in the Book of Mormon. So Alma chapters 36 through 42 um, are letters from Alma to his children, as we mentioned last week. Um. In chapters 36 and 37, Alma is speaking to his oldest son, Helaman. Chapter 38, he speaks to his middle son, Shiblon, who seems to be the exemplary son. And then in chapters 39 through 42, he speaks to Corianton, and right out of the gate, he tells Corianton this. This is 39 verse 1. And now, my son, I have somewhat more to say unto thee than what I said unto thy brother, Shiblon, who just got done writing to For behold, have you not observed the steadiness of your brother, his faithfulness and his diligence in keeping the commandments of God? Behold, has he not set a good example for you? For thou didst not give so much heed unto my words, as did thy brother, among the people of the Zoramites. Now this is what I have against thee. And that phrase, I don't know, every kid has phrases that um, that they hate to hear from their parents, right? The classic one is, I'm just so disappointed. That's the one you use on our kids. Well, I just barely started using it, and it works. <laughs> and I'm surprised. It's, it's like a magic phrase, and I don't want to overuse it. But I said that sometime this week, and I just watched 
one of our son's face just crumple. And I felt Aww. bad for a second. <laughs> but the lesson he learned afterwards was well learned and hopefully not repeated. And Anyway, but that phrase from Alma to a son, this is what I have against thee. That has to be one of those yeah. one of those phrases. Thou didst go unto the uh, go on unto the boasting in thy strength and thy wisdom. And this is not all, my son. Thou didst do that which was grievous unto me, for thou didst forsake the ministry and did go into the land of Siron among the borders of the Lamanites after the harlot Isabel. And she did steal away the hearts of many. But this was no excuse for thee, my son. Thou didst have thou shouldst have tended to the ministry wherewith thou wast entrusted. Know ye not, my son, that these things are an abomination in the sight of the Lord, yea, most abominable above all sins, save it be the shedding of blood or denying of the Holy Ghost. I, um, that's hard. And so that's who Corianton is. Uh, he serves with his father and his brother and they, as they went on their mission to the Lamanites. And as he's there, he leaves his mission and breaks the law of chastity. However... This story doesn't end here. Sometimes I've, I've heard people leave the story of Corianton at the end of chapter 42, but that's not where his story ends. I love where his story ends. If you fast forward a couple of chapters, we're in Alma chapter 48, and it's kind of this, this uh, description of Captain Moroni, the great um, war captain of the Nephites. And we love to read this verse, a well-known verse, verse 17. Verily, verily, I say unto you, if all men had been and were and ever would be like unto Moroni, behold, the very powers of hell would have been shaken forever. Yea, the devil would never have power over the hearts of the children of men. I've heard that verse quoted so many times. People love it. I love it. And we love Captain Moroni for it. But we don't read the next verse. And the next verse tells the rest of the story of Coriantum. So verse 18, everything good about Captain Moroni, verse 17, and then verse 18. Behold, he was a man like unto Ammon, the son of Mosiah, yea, and even the other sons of Mosiah, yea, and also Alma and his sons, for they were all men of God. In other words, if you were to take Corianton's name and put it back in verse 17, verse 17 would read like this. Yea, verily, verily, I say unto you, if all men had been and were and ever would be like unto Corianton, behold, the very powers of hell would have been shaken forever. Yea, the devil would have never would never have power over the hearts of the children of men. So the story this week isn't just about a wayward son. It's about a wayward son that has an incredible conversion, so much so that Mormon later on will praise him as someone that, that could stop the very powers of hell. In fact, I, I love looking at that verse because the people that Mormon names are all these, these former sinners slash converts, Ammon and the sons of Mosiah, Alma and his sons. The majority of those people are people that have converted, that have changed from very wicked ways into something incredible. And so the question we want to ask this week, the question we invite you to ask as you study is, what truths do you see in Alma chapters 39 through 42 that would help you make that kind of change, whether your sins are big or small, many or little, long-standing or recent? What truths do you find, do you feel 
that make you want to change? Um, and or what truths do you see or find that could help you motivate someone else to change? Maybe there's someone in your life that feels or seems kind of like a Corianton and you want to be able to help them. Well, what would you teach them? What would you say to them? Well, Zach, so much of what you talked about just barely in that intro is kind of what I felt as I studied these chapters was just that idea of Alma knows this. Mm -hmm. Alma has been through this. Alma has, not only has he been in the depths, he's also felt the, the joy and beauty of repentance, which I think is kind of what makes this all the more powerful is he's saying, son, I get you. I understand what it's like to be in your position. And I want you to understand that your sin is, is great, but that God is great and that he's going to be there on that other end. And we get to hear his, through his sermon, just, just that. And I really loved, loved hearing that. I also loved hearing just, um, I think it was this verse in chapter 40, verse 20, he says, um, He's talking about the resurrection and he says, but behold, I give it as my opinion that the souls and the bodies are reunited. I just, that brought a little bit of humanness to this, I think, and reminded me that, oh yeah, Alma has been through this. This is his opinion because although he's teaching this solid doctrine and this in a beautiful way, a lot of what he's teaching is stuff that he has learned from the experience of going through a real repentance, a real cleansing process through the Savior. And it just shows the wrestle that he's been with. Not only the wrestle that he's been with with his own sins, but also the wrestle that he's he's undergone as he's learned and been taught from above. And that we can do that same thing too. I think to me this proves that we can, just that personal revelation of it, that personal revelation is such a big part of um, learning and growing and changing. Well, and if you want to help someone else, you can't help someone else do something that you yourself have never done. And if we're not careful, I think we could read chapter 39 and, and read this as the prophet teaching his son. But that's not what it is. This is a father who has gone through his own incredibly painful but incredibly powerful conversion, helping his son to do the same thing that he did. You know, Alma knows what he knows because mm -hmm. he's been through it. It's not a coincidence, I think, that Mormon, when he compiles the Book of Mormon, puts Alma 36, Alma's detailing of his repentance, so close to Alma 39, Alma helping someone else go through that same process. Oh, I hadn't thought of that. I really like that. Just to illustrate in a better point of like, I'm saying this as your equal, not as someone who's condemning what you've done. In fact, um, one of the things that is, we refer to it as an occupational hazard in seminaries and institutes for, um, for seminary or institute teachers, is that it is very tempting to teach the gospel without fully living the gospel. And, and I don't mean that, that seminary teachers are going around drinking and smoking and then going and teaching, <laughs> teaching, teaching seminary classes. What I mean is it's, it's tempting to get so focused when you want to help someone else. It's tempting to get so focused on reading the scriptures and preparing a lesson and making it just right. And then delivering that lesson with power and in a cool and exciting way so that someone goes, wow, what I learned and what I heard was so incredible. I'm going to change. And forget the most important part, which is, if you're really to study the scriptures, if you're really to study the gospel, you have to let it change you first before you can ever hope to change someone else. 
Um, this last year in teaching seminary, I did something I've never done, and I kind of eliminated uh, lesson plans. And all I did was I went through, I had two colors of pencils in my scriptures. Um, and with one color, I went through and I just marked what was important for me, what I felt God wanted me to learn, feel, do, and become. And I marked in my scriptures and I worked on it and I practiced it. And I noticed that themes kept coming up for me. You know, uh, this phrase keeps showing up over and over. It must be something God's trying to remind me of. And then in the other color, I went through and I just highlighted um, things that I wanted to point out to my students to help them have a similar experience. And so when I got into class, it wasn't, here's the lesson I've studied that I prepared for you. It's, I studied these scriptures and it had this kind of impact on me. And I know if I can ask you these couple of questions, and if I can point you to these couple of verses to get you started, you'll have your own experience just like I did. And I think that's what Alma's doing for Corianton. So one of the other themes, I think, you know, I mentioned what we just talked about was that you really feel that Alma understands and mm -hmm. he's been through it. I think the other one was that he teaches a plan. What do we need to know about God? I think it's important for us to understand the scope of what God has done and where he is and his plan for us. And, you know, he talks all about the restoration and resurrection and all of these really important things for us to know about. Um, but why do you think, and Zach, I'm just asking you this right now, <laughs> as I'm thinking about it, why do you think he... Was this a question from Coriant and maybe I missed the question or is this just a piece of him exactly answering this question of no understand God's greatness and how he works so that you can understand that you mean something yeah. to him that there's a plan for you yeah. anyway what's your opinion well, on that? I, I mean at the beginning of chapter 40 Alma says I know that your mind is worried concerning the resurrection of the dead and then in chapter 42 um, mm. he knows that uh, there's still Oh, what does he say? Uh, there is somewhat more which doth worry your mind, which you cannot understand, which is concerning the justice of God and the punishment of the sinner. So I think Corianton's behavior seems to be not just uh, a mistake, but based on some incorrect ideas. So Alma's trying to help him see. Um, and, and if you read between the lines, it seems like not Corianton didn't just commit a sin. He committed a sin and then tried to justify it because Alma speaks to him about that. Don't stop trying to justify your sins. And again, by all accounts, Corianton changes that. But he's, Alma's not just trying to get Corianton to stop sinning. He's trying to get Corianton to stop justifying sin because when you justify sin, then you don't want to repent. You don't want to participate in the plan. Right. And so that's part of it. And the other thing I thought as you were speaking, though, is how great is it that God's plan of redemption uh, counts on, that's a wrong way to say it, it accounts for us making mistakes, right? His plan wasn't ever that we're going to be perfect. His plan was that we're going to make mistakes and that he built things into this plan so that we could have the opportunity to change and grow and develop and repent and, and return to him. And that's what he describes in this plan. I, I mean, we love these chapters to talk about, you know, as we talk about the plan of salvation, but I just, I think that that's such a cool point to think that he was really teaching to what Corianta needed and that we get to learn from that. And I love this um, in verse in chapter 39, verse 13, he says that ye turn to the Lord with all your mind, might, and strength. Um, and I think that's a lesson for us is that as we turn to him, we're going to have our questions answered 
and maybe have our our heart soften towards the things that um, that we're worried about as we turn in the right direction. I think we can get those answers in those way in those ways. Because ultimately it comes to this in 39 verse 15. And now my son, I would say somewhat unto you concerning the coming of Christ. Behold, I say unto you that it is he that surely shall come to take away the sins of the world. Yea, he cometh to declare glad tidings of salvation unto the people. Um, So what do we need to understand for ourselves or teach others about God is just that, that it all centers around Christ and around the plan that, that he is the center of. I love that. Um, I even love in verse 17, I know this is related to a different topic, but I just love that Alma's desire is to ease your mind. Uh, that's what he wants for Coriant. And he'll say at the end of this, don't don't let this trouble you. This is in chapter 42. Oh, I should get there. Verse 30 uh, or verse 29. Only let your sins trouble you with that trouble which shall bring you down unto repentance. Um if you are too quick in reading these chapters, I think you could get the idea that Alma's goal is to make his son feel horribly guilty and then to motivate him to repent out of guilt. But that's not it at all. He shows him in no uncertain terms how serious his sins are and what the consequences of sin, uh, unrepented sin like that can bring. But it's all to create a, a comparison with how good God is, right? As you just read that verse 15, that Christ is coming to take away the sins of the world and declare salvation to his people. And and uh, it's clear that Alma wants to motivate out of a love for God, not out of a fear for punishment. And so the two points I have are kind of related to that. Um, I love, I've always loved in verse 7 and uh I think a lot of people have seen this and love it too, but sometimes there's confusion about it. Uh, Verse seven, at the very end, Alma says, for behold, they are their own judges, whether they do good or do evil. And I was curious to see just in these letters, I don't know in the rest of the Book of Mormon, so this is not a blanket statement, but just in these chapters, Alma does not ever phrase judgment in terms of God judging his people. He does say that people, that uh, all men, for example, verse three, all men shall be judged according to their works or that they'll brought before God to be judged according to their works. But he doesn't say that God's doing the judging. Now, of course, doctrinally speaking, Jesus Christ is the ultimate judge. And I'll talk about that here in just a minute. But I think it's interesting that Alma points out as a truth to help us want to change that your life, your desires are what judge you. Um, I, I, I love saying this to people um, because I remember, I probably mentioned this on this podcast, I remember looking at the plan of salvation as a kid and seeing the three different kingdoms and thinking, well, God's not going to, I mean, I'm, I'm not celestial kingdom material. That's for prophets and seminary council presidents. Um, terrestrial kingdom is probably for, you know, the normal, active, regular members of the church. So I'm probably telestial kingdom material. Um And I had that thought, honestly, for a really long time. Um, And it wasn't until I started understanding how good and how wonderful God is and how much he desires for us to be with him that I realized, okay, wait a minute. God doesn't want me to be in the celestial kingdom or the terrestrial. He wants me to be with him in the celestial kingdom. Uh, But I have to choose it through my desires and through my actions. So I think that phrase, we are, they are their own judges, kind of gets misinterpreted. It's not that we get to Um, state where we want to go just at the last moment. It's that we show through our life 
where we want to go and what kind of life we want to live in the afterlife. And so if you want to be in the celestial kingdom, start today living or striving for that kind of celestial life and you'll get there because that's what God wants. And if that's what you want, those two wants match up and that's where you get to go. The second thought that for me is the, for me personally is the most powerful one to change in here uh, is in chapter 42 and is one I've just recently kind of grasped. There's a phrase repeated in chapter 42 that's very interesting and you only find in the Book of Mormon. At the end of verse 13, Alma is explaining in verse 13 the justice of God, that God must be just. There must be punishment of the sinner. Uh, And he says specifically, mercy could not take effect except it should destroy the work of justice. Now, the work of justice could not be destroyed. If so, God would cease to be God. So... Doctrinal point A, if God is not just, then he would cease to be God. Therefore, God has to be 100% just. However, in verse 22, now there is a law given and a punishment affixed and repentance granted, which repentance mercy claimeth. Otherwise, justice claimeth the creature and executeth the law and the law inflicteth the punishment. If not so, the works of justice would, would be destroyed and God would cease to be God. Verse 22 is about mercy. In fact, verse 23 continues it. But God ceaseth not to be God, and mercy claimeth the penitent, and mercy cometh because of the atonement. So doctrinal point two, in order for God to be God, he has to be merciful. And the question always comes up, how can God be merciful and just at the same time? I've heard this explained um, as, well, that's where Jesus Christ comes in. He's the one that extends mercy, which is okay to me, except that seems to paint the picture that Heavenly Father is the just one. He's the law abider and the rule giver and the one that's not going to budge an inch. And Jesus Christ is the merciful kind one. But that doesn't square because, of course, they are one in all things. And if we read the scriptures carefully, Jesus Christ is the ultimate judge. So we're talking about this one God, Jesus Christ, who is our judge, and he is both just and merciful. And how on earth does that happen? And the answer to that for me is this beautiful image in verse 15. And now the plan of mercy could not be brought about except an atonement should be made. In other words, there does need to be an atonement for justice and mercy to exist in the same place at the same time. There needs to be an atonement. Therefore, God himself atoneth for the sins of the world to bring about the plan of mercy, to appease the demands of justice, that God might be a perfect, just God and a merciful God also. Well, you're right. When you start studying justice and mercy, it can get really confusing, but I love, I love some of the way that we've, we've been studying about this. And I just have to read Alma 42 verse 30. He says, Oh, my son, I desire that you should deny the justice of God no more. Do not endeavor to excuse yourself in the least point because of your sins by denying the justice of God. But do you let the justice of God and his mercy and his longsuffering have full sway in your heart and let it bring you down to the dust in humility? In fact, um, I read this quote a little while ago. It's a 20-year-old quote, so. But it, to me, perfectly explains how God can be both just and merciful. This is Elder Holland. He says this, Christ is not only a mediator, but also a judge. It is in that role of judge that we may find even greater meaning in the expression that God himself will come down and redeem his people. It is as if the judge in that great courtroom in heaven 
unwilling to ask anyone but himself to bear the burden of the guilty people standing in the dock, takes off his judicial robes and comes down to earth to bear their stripes personally. Christ, as merciful judge, is as beautiful and wonderful a concept as that of Christ as counselor, mediator, and advocate. For me, the most compelling truth in here, and the one I would teach to anybody else that I wanted to help change is that God, our Jesus Christ, our Savior, is just. He's law-abiding. He creates laws and he obeys laws to the letter. He cannot excuse sin in the least degree. He cannot wink at it. He can't ignore it. However, because of his complete love and compassion for us, he himself atones for those sins, and he himself pays the penalty of sin so that if we will just choose him, if we'll judge ourselves and choose him, uh, then we can be forgiven and we can be redeemed. And I love that image of Jesus Christ as merciful judge. Well, I love that quote from Elder Holland. I think he teaches that so well, certainly someone who can teach it with passion. If you remember, it was a talk about his the boy falling off the cliff that he uses that beautiful illustration just in a recent conference talk. We'll put it in our show notes because I know we referenced it two years ago in our 2018 Book of Mormon study. And we talked a lot about that um, that quote from that hymn that where justice, love, and mercy meet. I just think that's a beautiful way of describing the Savior, just, merciful, and loving. And certainly that's who God is too. That's what this plan is that Alma's describing in these chapters. And he explains this again in chapter 42, verse 30. He says, O my son, I desire that ye should deny the justice of God no more. Do not endeavor to excuse yourself in the least point because of your sins by denying the justice of God. But do you let the justice of God and his mercy and his long suffering have full sway in your heart and let it bring you down to the dust in humility? I love the way that he explains these things that we've talked about. Don't deny what your sin was. Make that be a part of you because as you understand what you've been through, you'll understand with even more tenderness the mercy and the love that God has for you. Um, And I love the phrase, letting it have full sway in your heart. Let yourself feel all the emotions because Christ is there. He atoned for these things so that we can really understand the love that he and our Father in heaven have for us. Um, And ultimately it comes down to that. Let it bring you down to the dust in humility. Feel it because recognizing yourself in this plan brings so much humility, so much gratitude for what we've been given. And I love that right after that, let justice and mercy have full sway in your heart. And then in verse 31, and now, O my son, you are called of God to preach the word unto the people. I'm not sending you home. I'm just sending you back out. Once you understand this uh, and, and make these changes, you're good to go. And so we return right back where we began, chapter 48, Alma 48, verse 17. Verily, verily, I say unto you, if all men had been and were and ever would be like unto Corianton or Zach or Krista or anyone else that repents, behold, the very powers of hell would have been shaken forever. Yea, the devil would never have power over the hearts of the children of men. It's interesting that in that list that Mormon gives in verse 18, it's like Ammon, the son of Mosiah, and the other sons of Mosiah, and Alma and his sons, and you and me. The people that make Satan shake aren't perfect people. 
They're people that know how to change. They know how good God is and how loving and long-suffering, just and merciful he is. And they're people that change because of that love. That's what makes Satan shake. And so if you want to stop sin in your life, it's not about being perfect. It's about being repentant. And I think this block is so powerful in helping us to repent. And then these loving, powerful doctrines can help us as we reach out and and, and seek to motivate others to make those changes as well. All right. Thank you so much for studying with us. These letters, the last couple weeks that we studied have been a great kind of intermission as we start into the war chapters. We gave a little teaser for that in Alma 35. As the war begins, we have these letters. And now next, actually the next two weeks, we're going to be studying the end of Alma as we dig into the war chapters. So we're looking forward to that. Um, We hope you have a great week and a great study this week. Thanks so much. 